Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Hey, before we get into our um, sermon, I I recognize that many of you, like me, have been paying attention to uh, what's going on in the news with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think just in the digital world we're in, we just uh, get a lot, a lot more information about what's going on in the world comes to us. All I want to ask you to do, uh, and I want to take a moment to do, is just pray for the church there. Um, and if you can, hey, give financially to the church there. Give to uh, the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary there in Kiev. Um, their president said just the other day they've turned all their classrooms into um, shelters to, for people that have been displaced by the bombings. Uh, not only that, he said something that I thought was just... Uh, this is so good. He said, you know, the church has not forgotten what it means to be persecuted. So we'll rearrange, we'll reorganize, and we'll do what we always do. We'll preach the gospel. Um, and there's a, there's a church right nearby there, um, Urban Bible Church. And I think it stood out to me because it's about the same size as Mercy Church. And the pastor has four kids. And he said, hey, we're, um, we're staying put. And we are, he said, um, what was the way he said it? Uh, he said, here's the deal. If the church is not relevant in a time of crisis, then it does not earn the right to be relevant in a time of peace. So he's staying put, and they're training their members in first aid to be ready for uh, serving people in the image and likeness of Christ, serving the Imago Dei, just come what may. Um, and so I just want to pray for them, and by praying for them, here this is big, we're committing them to a God who is able, right? Like our prayers are not just, we don't have anything else to do. It is the very best thing that we can do as the church is to take them before the Lord. Uh, so I want to pray for them, and then we'll continue into our, uh, into our message. Father, thank you that you are sovereign, you are eternal, you are imminent with us, you are holy, you are good. And we know as we lift our prayers, even as we have already heard in Exodus that our prayers ascend up and you hear them and you know what's going on, uh, we thank you for your goodness we thank you for the witness we're already seeing from our brothers and sisters, our family of faith there in Ukraine. And Father, we ask that you, we do ask that you would protect them. And more than that, we ask that you would glorify yourself through them. That's the prayer they're praying, and we join them in it. With the name of Christ in a mysterious way that we can't understand, but we know that you are able. Would the name of Christ be magnified? Would the lost be saved? Father, we, we beg you that you would spare lives, but we give this all to you, trusting you, knowing that you are holy and good. And we pray and we lift up our brothers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, Exodus chapter 3. Last week, we met Moses, and we looked at the major milestones in Moses' life, where Moses is looking back on the first 80 years of his life, and he showed us three times where he saw God to be faithful. And we talked about milestones of 
in our own lives. In fact, um, my community group was, we had an awesome discussion around how we have seen God to be faithful in our lives as we talked about different milestones in our lives. And I, I've heard that that's what's happened in several community groups. In fact, I was having dinner Friday night with our community group leaders up at our Mercy Northeast campus, who I love so much. Um, and we were talking through, they were sharing with me story after story um, of just having that discussion around God's faithfulness. Well, man, uh, just as this is big, what we said was recognizing his past faithfulness encourages us that that same God will be faithful. Uh, Last week, we met Moses. This week, Moses meets God, and we get to meet God with him. So our title for the sermon of Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to cover the whole chapter, is simply this. God is, and then we're going to fill in the blank. I really wanted to call it, is God, because of that cool video that we do right beforehand. But God is, and then we're going to fill in the blank. The big idea of Exodus is that the most important thing in your life is what you think about God. It's not your race. It's not your political views. It's not your marital status, right? It's not whether you're a dog person or a cat person, whether you're green bubble or blue bubble, right? Whatever that is, the most important thing in your life, the thing that actually shapes everything else is what you think about God. So we're going to fill in the blank here on who God reveals himself to be here in Exodus chapter 3. But y'all, this is not just some lecture on the nature of God. The purpose of this sermon is to help us experience in some measure what Moses experienced when he meets God, a radical reorientation of his whole life around the trajectory God sets for him because he sees God for who he really is. And what makes this encounter so helpful for us is that Moses reacts to God of the same kind of way we usually react to God. God appears to Moses. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to appear to Moses in a burning bush, audibly speak to him, give him a purpose for his life, and then Moses is still going to be concerned about his own ability to perform the task. It's crazy. It'd be like heading down to Carowinds, hopping on a roller coaster, and then being concerned about your ability and skill level to be able to finish the ride. Like, you have, there's no skill required to finish the roller coaster ride. In fact, you have nothing to do with getting to the destination. You hold on for dear life and you enjoy the ride. Well, a lot of times, y'all, this is how we are with God. We get so focused on ourselves that we forget that apart from God, we can do nothing. Right, that God has given us identity and purpose for our lives, and still, he's even given us the prayers to pray for our lives, and still we get so concerned about our ability to get to where he is taking us. Man, y'all, Moses in our passage, he's going to go so far as to think that his God-given assignment hangs on his ability, but what we'll see is God patiently and lovingly shift Moses' focus off of himself and back onto God. And what God is going to show Moses today is the most important thing in Moses' life is what he thinks about God. So we're going to go with Moses. We're going to meet God. God's going to tell Moses about the ride he's about to take him on. And he's going to say, look, just stop looking at yourself and start looking at me. Draw your confidence from who I am. And likewise, we are going to draw our eyes up to who God is, draw our confidence from the fact that this is the God who has focused his love and power and presence onto us. So we'll go through all of chapter 3, just like last week we went through all of chapter 2. We're going to go through all of chapter 3, and I'm just going to stop along the way, and I'm going to show you who God is. So we start in verse 1. You ready? 
I hope at Northeast, y'all are ready, okay? It's still early here at Providence Road, but y'all are ready, I know. So let's go. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The fact that Moses is shepherding (laughs) shows that a real humbling has happened in his life. He's gone from Egyptian royalty. An Egyptian royal would never be caught shepherding. But now he's out shepherding, and he's not even like, it's not even his flock. He's shepherding somebody else's sheep. He's assistant shepherd or assistant to the shepherd. We don't know, right? (laughs) That's part of his story, right? He is riches to rags. I told you guys last week, before God's going to use Moses, he's going to humble Moses. And it's a reminder Before he's going to use us, he's going to humble us. And so if you feel like you've taken a step or three back in your life, maybe that is God's grace in humbling you to prepare you for what he's about to do through you. And verse 2, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to see more about this mountain, but it's a very important mountain. All right? So just hang on to that. We'll come back to it in a few weeks. Verse 2, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked... He saw the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. All right, this voice at this moment, whoever this is to Moses, we know it's God because Moses, our author, is now writing, you know, a long time later talking about this interaction. But whoever this is in this moment knows Moses' name. Remember how we saw at the end of Exodus 2, God knew. God knew the Israelites by name. He knows Moses by name. He knew, and he knows you and I by name too. Before you know him, he knows you. In fact, the Psalms say before the foundations of the earth, he created you. He knew you. He created you in your mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the deep desires of your heart. He knows you. And so here's Moses' response when he hears his name. Here I am, he answered. Well, do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's the very first thing that we're going to learn about, that Moses learns about God, is that God is holy. He's holy. Even the ground around this burning bush is so holy, Moses needs to take off his shoes as a form of reverence. The word holy means that he's set apart, sacred. God is not ordinary or commonplace. The fire reminds us, by the way, that in this holiness, God being holy God is not fragile, all right? No, his holiness is actually a danger to mortals who would trifle with it. That's why in verse 4, the Lord warns Moses. That shout, the Lord saw him getting close, and he warned him. Moses, Moses, watch out. Don't get any closer. He's a fire. In fact, y'all, this fire is actually a little, I'm almost going to treat it like a subpoint to this point that God is holy. Because God is fire, not like emoji fire, like super cool kind of thing, but more like burning hot, consuming flame kind of way, 
right? He reveals himself as fire throughout Scripture, whether it's the moments from Abraham to Daniel here or Ezekiel. God comes to his people in fire or John in the New Testament where he sees Jesus as one who has eyes of fire. The purifying nature of fire is what gives us an appropriate understanding to the, of how holy God really is. That's his holiness. And all of this, by the way, leads the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament to pull back his, um, to kind of summarize as he's concluding his treatise on who God is. And it's the end of verse uh, chapter 12. And he just goes, our God is a consuming fire, which means he has the power to consume anything and everything and doesn't consume. He can consume when he wants to or not. He's completely in control as well. So he's not consuming this bush. And the reason I spend time on the fire is to awaken us that his holiness is powerful and uncommon. Uh, there's a, a great new book out by Jackie Hill Perry called Holier Than Thou. She gives just a helpful, I think, understanding of God's holiness. She said, treating God like he's ordinary might be a natural response when we're ignorant to who God has revealed himself to be. Even with Moses, if he wasn't told not to come near, he would have. He had to be instructed on how to approach God to not come too close, to remove his shoes and respect the sanctified ground underfoot. The Lord's prayer begins in such a way that if one decided to let it sit on the mind for a bit, one might not choose to say anything at all. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Around him the seraphim refused to look. Before him Isaiah confessed. Seeing him, Isaiah fell on his face in front of him. John fell at his feet like a body does once the soul leaves. He's holy. Do you approach him that way? I believe this is something we're just beginning to recapture in our day. Our previous generation, uh, the church in our previous generation, worked hard to reveal how accessible God is. And that's good because he is accessible to us in Christ. We can approach the throne of grace. But if we're not careful, we can get casual with that access and forget that the throne of grace is a throne on which the king of kings sits. And we come to him as servants. Y'all, we got to continue to recover the holiness of God in our church and in our homes. we got to recover reverential awe, like we said that first week. And as we go through the process of humbling ourselves before a holy God, that's when he begins to work in us. Man, I believe it. He, he's holy. Now, I want to give an aside to this. This God is holy to this burning bush moment that Moses has because I know it's a conversation I've had with, with many. Some of you are thinking, well, if God would just reveal himself in a burning bush now, like if on my way uh, walking back up to my house, he would reveal himself in a burning like holly bush, right? Or on my way back to my apartment. Then, and just start talking to me? Well, then I would follow him. Because finally, he would be real to me. Humbly, let me give you a couple of reasons why that's just not true. All right? And to, to warn you against looking for a sign. Listen, seeing a sign like that would not make you believe. Even uh, biblical history, even Moses' own story, shows us that the human heart is not in need of signs. It's in need of a savior, not signs. God isn't going to wow you into his kingdom. Now, he might get your attention, and I have plenty of stories. All, most of us have stories of God getting our attention. And maybe, maybe some of you have experienced that, but the only way he gets your heart it's through his spirit coming to you and bringing you from death to life. You responding to his message of salvation and you walking and being led by his spirit. Yeah. Secondly, y'all, Jesus condemns those who hunt for signs. 
Matthew 16, 4, he condemns the Pharisees, right, for seeking signs in order to believe, saying that it's an evil and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. It's, it's experience craving, right? You want to experience something. But just because you experience something like that doesn't mean you're going to give your life to it. And for real, by the way, I'm going to say this as often as it comes up in Scripture, if Jesus condemns it, I would discourage you from doing it, okay? Because he's God, all right? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And lastly, you already have a word from God. You've got the scriptures. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to you. In fact, Peter, 2 Peter 1. This is Peter. Here's what he says. This is the guy who walked with Jesus, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses, and he hears God speak. He says, even though I was there for all of that, you know what he says? Peter says, we have the prophetic word, the scriptures, more fully confirmed than all that experience to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And the other, in other words, church, the Bible is your burning bush. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. It's the living and active word. The Bible is the word of God saying, son, daughter, I made you. I love you. I paid your ransom for your sin by sending my firstborn up on the cross for you. And if you'll come to me, I'll give you new life. I'll be with you until I bring you home with me. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. Let's keep going. He's holy. Watch what else we see. I'm going to read you verses 7 through 10. The Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. And I have come down to rescue them. Oh, by the way, that is the grand narrative of Scripture. I've come to rescue them. Come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, so because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. By the way, just as the commission, just as the grand narrative is, I've come to rescue them, so the grand commission, the great commission of God's people always has been, in light of that, therefore, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God is now saying to Moses what we, the reader, knew at the end of chapter 2. God knew, but now God speaks his plan to deliver them. And he says, here's where you're going. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. In fact, let me read you a few verses later, um, down in verses 18. In verses 16 through 18, he says, look, y'all are going to go, actually, with the rest of the, the leaders of Israel. You're going to go up to the king of Egypt, and you're going to tell them, hey, we need to go and worship God uh, out in the wilderness. Verse 19, when you tell them that, here's what's going to happen. However, I know, <laughs> y'all, he knew, he knows. I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, not all miracles are rainbows, all right, we'll see that in a few weeks, I, that I will perform in it after that, he will let you go. God is saying, I know, I knew, I know present, I know future. I know the, how the king of Egypt even thinks and feels. 
I know how this is all going to go down. That's Proverbs 21.1. A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he pleases. Here's what I want you to see from verses 7 through 10 and how this whole thing finishes here in chapter 3. God is not only holy, God is sovereign. Sovereign means he is actively and completely in control over the people and events in the world. And because his character is good, it isn't just logical that we submit to him because he's sovereign. It's good for us. It's good for us that he's fully in control. That all of his promises, because he is fully in control and he's fully good, all of his promises, which are good for us, are going to come true. His promises are so good for us. R.C. Sproul said in his book on holiness, if there is one single molecule in the universe running around, loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God is ever going to be fulfilled. But y'all, there are no limits on what he controls. So whatever he wills, he does. Now I know sometimes the response to the reality of God's sovereignty is, yeah, but what about, what about my free will? Yes, the Lord grants you agency. That's clear. We're not robots. He wants us to turn to him and follow him of our own accord. But often when we are asking about what about my free will, I think the question actually underneath that in our hearts is what about my sovereignty? I agree about God's sovereignty. But what about my sovereignty, my control? So the better question that reveals what's going on in your heart when you hear about God's sovereignty is how committed are you to the myth of your own sovereignty? He is sovereign, not you, and that is really, really good for you. You would make a terrible God, okay? You know, some of you have tried, right? The more you try and grip and control your life, the more you see how terrible of a God you make. All right, let me come back, verses 11 through 15 now. <laughs> so God has told Moses to go, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? <laughs> I, does anybody else resonate with this? You, you want me to go where? Like anywhere else on the planet would be fine. But you want me to go back there to Pharaoh? Uh, who am I? Which, by the way, even the question, who am I, is funny because if he would have thought about it for just a second, he would have remembered that God just called him by name. God knows who he is. But this is the exchange. How often do we respond to God's calling? God, who am I? Really, even God, do you know who I am? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. In fact, God, you, if I believe you're sovereign and you know everything, you know my past. Moses is like, you know I'm a fugitive. You know I'm old. Who am I? Some of you think the same thing. How could God possibly send me? God has a purpose for my life, but how could he really send me to tell my neighbor about Jesus? Listen, the only reason, I think, that we don't quadruple the number of baptisms that we see uh, this year is because we, each one of us, are too caught up in asking God the same question Moses is asking God. God says, I'm sending you to your neighbor. And we say, who am, who am I? I'm sending you to your friends. Yeah, but who, who am I? God, I'm sending you to your classmates. Yeah, but, you know, who am I? To your own family, to your children, to your spouse, to the homeless, to the orphan, to the Afghan refugees that are resettling in Charlotte today as we speak. 
God is sovereignly sending out his people among the lost. And all we can think is, yeah, but who am I? He's got a wonderful ride for us. And we're like, yeah, but how am I supposed to get this roller coaster to the finish line? I don't think I can do it. I'm an Enneagram, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Woo. Aside, if you know more Enneagram types than you do about the nature of God, this hopefully is a good awakening for you today. And I love the Enneagram, but we should love God more. All right, back in. How does God answer Moses when Moses gives this, yeah, but who am I? And you've got to listen in because this is the question we ask, whether we verbalize it or not. Who am I? Verse 12, he answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I'm the one who sent you. You will bring the people out of Egypt. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. God does not encourage Moses by pointing out his strengths. He doesn't talk about Moses at all. You know who you are? I will be with you. That's who you are. So just hold on tight. God is sovereignly in control, and this is good for us. And y'all, by the way, it's the same thing Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them out. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them the things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. That's where your strength. In fact, before that, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he finishes with, and I will be with you. That's not like some sentimental thing. That is theology. It's a characteristic of who God is. In fact, it leads me right to the next characteristic of who God is, what he says right here. God is imminent. By the way, this is your little, little uh, theological term for today, okay? He's imminent. That means he is present in us. Not imminent like something's about to happen. Not that, okay? Imminence describes how he is present with his people, like Ephesians 4, 6. He is in all things. He's in us. He's holding all things together because he's right here. Yes, he's also transcendent. He exists outside of the world, outside of time. Yes, he's omnipresent everywhere at all times, but he's also, Scripture says he's close. He's with his people. It's like relational proximity also marked by physical proximity. You know how insane this is? God is with you? Well, so Moses got some more questions, right? Just like we do. Moses asked God, let me read you the next few verses, uh, 13 through 15. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites, he's not even sure if he's going yet. He's conditional. If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I'm to be remembered in every generation. For those of you newer to the Bible, this is a very big moment. 
that scripture keeps looking back on, the I am statement. This is God introducing himself by the name he is still known by today. Whenever you see, like if you're reading through your Bible day in, day out, and you see the word Lord um, capitalized, like L-O-R-D, the whole thing capitalized, that's this name. It's the name Yahweh. When you see I am, it's Yahweh. It's actually only four letters, but because they're all consonants, we English speakers dropped in some vowels so that we could be able to say Yahweh. Right? We can't really do that, so we drop in the vows there and say, Yahweh, the I am. This became the holy sacred name of God to his people. And it warrants, every single time we see it in scripture, it warrants the same reverential awe in us. In fact, the Israelites would very rarely say this name and would come up with other names to, that described God because of how sacred and holy this name is. Here's what he's saying when he introduces himself by this name. God is eternal. When he says, I am, he's saying he's eternal. This is my name forever. And that's because he is forever. He's free to act within time as he wills, but he exists outside of it. He is simultaneously the God of the past, present, and future, bending time to his perfect will. The past holds no missed opportunity for him. The present, no anxiety. The future, no uncertainty. He was and is and is to come. He's simply I am. And not only is he eternal, this is so good, he's unchanging. The importance that God is, the importance that God is the same God from eternity past to present and to future is that the God that you're reading about with Moses, he says, he even acknowledges Moses, I'm the same God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God of his ancestors will be the same to Moses. It will be the same to Ruth and Boaz, to Esther and Mordecai, to Nehemiah and Ezra, to Isaiah and Jeremiah, to Saul and David. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, he is the same God that was with Moses. And he's the same God to the early church. And right now, this second, he's the same God that he was Adam and Eve. He's unchanging in his power, in his love, in his patience, and in his purpose for you. You and I, we change all the time. We change our minds, our hearts, and desires constantly. But God is always I am. Which means regardless of what kind of performance you have had this week, whether you've been a great husband or a lazy one, whether you read your Bible every day or never cracked it open, he still hasn't changed. If this is your first time in church in 30 years, I got great news. He hasn't changed. Everything else has. I'm not wearing a suit. We have drums. I mean, a lot of things have changed. This is your first time in 30 years, okay? But God has not changed. His love for you has not changed. His beautiful announcement of his love in the gospel has not changed. That doesn't mean we presume on his love. That means we take it for granted. It means our response to own our sin is to receive that same love again and walk forward in full, ex full acceptance that's found in faith in Christ. That leads me to the final thing about God. Jesus is God. It's the final thing you've got to know about God. It's that Jesus is God. There's this powerful moment where Jesus is confronting some Jewish leaders. They're arguing about who Jesus is. They think he's a madman possessed by a demon. John 8 records this. And Jesus says to them, your father Abraham actually rejoiced to see my day. He saw it 
and was glad. And the Jews replied, whoa, whoa, whoa. You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. That's a callback to this moment we're reading about in Exodus 3, where God introduced his holiest of names, Yahweh. He's saying, Jesus is saying, that's me. And for those of you, by the way, who have religion professors, New Testament professors, or skeptical friends who will say, yo, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. I don't know what else to tell you, but yes, he did. This is the clearest moment. He actually claimed it several times, but this is the clearest moment. And even the reason why we know this is the clearest moment is because the next verse, what do the Jewish leaders do? They try to stone him for blasphemy. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. And even his enemies knew it. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. He is God in the flesh. Think about everything we just said about God. Jesus is holy. John the Baptist is going to say he's not even worthy to tie his sandals when Jesus comes. Demons are going to shudder and flee in his presence because they know who he is. He's God. So they beg for mercy and flee. And that holiness, y'all, means that Jesus is the one worthy of our worship. He's worthy of whatever it's going to cost to follow him. In fact, oh, this is great. The author of Hebrews is actually going to talk a little bit about Moses and Moses making the decision as we're looking at Moses, and we'll see it again in chapter 4. Moses is going through this whole, am I really going to follow God? Am I really going to do this because I know what it might bring to me? Hebrews 11.26 is going to sound crazy. For he, Moses, considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be for the sake of Christ. See that? To be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. For for the sake of Christ, what God is saying here is that the reward of the promised land would not be the complete fulfillment of God's promise to deliver his people. But one day, full deliverance would come, and that's in the form of Christ. The Messiah delivering God's people once and for all from bondage to the enemy and the promised land would be God's people dwelling with him forever in his kingdom in heaven. And whatever reproach, humiliation, suffering, battles, whatever he would endure, Christ was worthy of it all. And here we sit on the other side of the cross and on the other side of the empty tomb. Having the gospel, we can join Moses and join the elders of Israel gathered around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5, and we can say, worthy is the lamb. Do you see him as holy? Do you see Jesus as worthy of your worship? Because if you do, man, everything changes. You'll stop looking at yourself so much. Not only is he holy, Jesus is sovereign. The winds and the waves do what he says. There's Luke 8, this guy named Jairus. He's got a daughter, deathly ill, about to die. He said, Jesus, I need your help. Come, would you heal my daughter? Jesus says, let's go. But time is of the essence. She's about to die. On the way, Jesus stops and heals the woman, knowing full well, because he knows all things, that by stopping and healing the woman, the little girl is going to die. He stops, he heals the woman. Little girl dies. Jairus comes, says, don't worry. Don't even bother coming. She's already dead. And Jesus locks eyes with him. Man, says, don't be afraid. Only believe. You can hear the echo of Exodus 2. I know. I knew and I know. Only believe. Jesus is sovereign. He knew what he walked in there and he healed that little girl. 
brought her back to life. And he is still sovereign over your life now. Which means if he's sovereign and he's holy and he's good, you can trust him. Jesus is imminent. The miracle of God becoming man walking around among us is so great we celebrate it every year for a month at Christmas. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he didn't stop, Matthew 28, like I just told you, to the end of the age, he's with us. He's eternal. In Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. Why is God speaking in the plural? John 1 tells us, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things are created. And when you read Revelation, he's seated there on the throne for the rest of eternity. Satan could not turn him. Ministry could not tire him. The grave could not hold him. Time itself cannot contain him. He's eternal. He's God. So when Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that is active. That's not just then. That's an active promise now. He's with the church now. He's alive and active, which is why, church, there is power here. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a, I've told you this before, a defensive mechanism. Why? Because we're following our Savior and charging the gates of hell and bringing people from death to life again. And he's with us because he's eternal. Lastly, he's unchanging. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The love of Christ directed towards you, it's always there. He never wavers when you waver. He's the same, his love is the same, and the purpose of Exodus is to widen our eyes to the Christ that even Moses, who's looking ahead without certainty about it, even he considered Christ worthy of his reputation, worthy to risk his whole life for. And it's to tell you he's worthy. He's worthy. So you can turn to him with everything. If you've never turned to him before, you can turn to him today. If you've been casual in your approach to him, he's holy. You can turn back to him today. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Let's respond to the holiness of God. I want to give you a chance to respond to God as we do here most weeks. Just responding and saying, God, I, if you're a Christian, where you have been casual with God, now's your time to repent from that to recognize that God is now with you. So you are standing, sitting on holy ground because God is with you. You take a second and repent where you've been casual with God. Then when you tell him that you trust him, God, you are holy. You are sovereign. You are with me. So I'm going to trust you with the assignment You've given me in my life. I'm going to trust you with the things I don't know about just ahead of me. I trust you. My outcome's not based on my ability. You know my name. And you're with me. And if you're not a Christian, oh, give your life to him today. I told you, Jesus, all these things about God is... We see it in human form in Christ. And he came. I was telling just my, uh, my little girl this the other day. Like the one scripture verse, if you memorize nothing else, John 3, 16. He came and he gave his one and only son 
that you might have life. God loved you. He so loved the world. If you believe in him, you can have life, new life, and life everlasting. And that belief is believing that you are a sinner. You need saving from your sin. And you tell him, God, I need it. I know, I need a savior. You tell him that right now. I need saving from my sin. I believe Jesus died to save me. Thank you, God. To the eternal, holy, sovereign God, thank you for fixing your love on me and saving me. I receive that love. And I receive new life in Christ. God, we love you. Thank you for the saving work you're doing among us. God, I pray that we would trust you as you send us out to our community with the great hope of the gospel, that it's not our ability. It's entirely you. But in your kindness and goodness, you invite us in. We love you. We worship you this morning. In the holy name of Christ, amen.